Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, my friend? Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm glad that you're here. On this episode, I have an interview from the archives. I have to say, this is the kind of interview that I like. You probably, or maybe you don't know the name Vic Latham, but he was a very interesting man. He has since passed away. He was born April 17, 1935. He passed away March 31, 2013. Vic Latham inspired some of the most notable people of the 20th century, including Jerry Jeff Walker, Jimmy Buffett, and Phil Caputo. He was also the co-owner of the Full Moon Saloon in Key West, Florida. He was one of these guys who lived a very interesting life. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Every now and then, I'll hear from somebody who listened to that interview, someone who was friends with him or a relative of his, and I'm very glad that I got to do this interview with him. I hope you enjoy. Let me know what you think. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Mr. Vic Latham. He joins us to talk about the eternal verities. Thank you so much for joining us here. Well, it's my pleasure. I don't know how how much I can contribute, but anything I can deal with, well, let me know. (laughs) Let me just say that the eternal verities are echoing in bars in Key West to this very day. Well, that's good to hear. I hope they're still echoing from a few locals rather than all tourists. (laughs) (laughs) So many of of the people that I remember have moved away from Key West. There are very few of the old group that are really left there. Well, I think most stories are best from the beginning. So where and when were you born? I was born, believe it or not, originally in Dallas, Texas, and my dad was a realtor and decided to retire in the late 40s, right after the Second World War, and moved back to Greenville, South Carolina. So I really consider the Carolinas home. I finished high school in a little town outside of Greenville easily and then finished college at the Citadel in Charleston. So, well, safely say that my background is the Southeast predominantly. Florida, I was in New Orleans for about 10 years. And then, of course, I was in Key West for 22 years, I guess, 23. Tell me a little bit about your parents. What did they do for a living? (laughs) Well. My mother was a school teacher. Dad was realtor in his later years. He was, as he used to say, born fiddle-footed. So he had lived over a good portion of the country doing practically everything. One of, one of the things that, of course, stood out in my mind is that he used to play poker with Pancho Villa's brother, in Juarez, Mexico. (laughs) So what was life like for you growing up? I think pretty normal for young Southern boys. I hated my college years, 
didn't take well to the regimentation of a military school at all. Uh, in fact, had already put in an application at the University of North Carolina when my father told me I could go to school anywhere I wanted, but he was paying my tuition at the Citadel. So we <laughs> locked horns from then on. Tell me how you ended up in New Orleans for, did you say, 10 years? Yeah, I was lucky enough to spend all of the 60s in New Orleans. I had, oh, for roughly a year, maybe 14 months after I finished college, I had worked in the television industry. Then I went to Officers Basic in El Paso, and this was between Korea and Vietnam. It was just when they were phasing out anti-aircraft artillery and phasing in guided missiles. So as we were being taught in Officers Basic, we were being told it was obsolete. So needless to say, I didn't do much with the military either. Six months was all I was in the service. And then I got out in El Paso and stayed first with one of the local television stations and then later published a bowling newspaper and a TV guide. This was in the late 50s, I guess. Very interesting. A bowling newspaper. <laughs> yeah. was one of the great hustles of all time in that we befriended the secretary of the bowling league in El Paso. And El Paso, being a military town, was a big bowling town. So by the time we had wined and dined the secretary, he went to every bowling house in the city and told them that either they advertised with us or didn't get sanctioned. So we had a nice little thing going. And of course, the television guide that I was publishing was the same thing as TV Guide, except it was before TV Guide came into that market. Very, very interesting. I have to ask you, what did you think of New Orleans? I loved it. As I say, I was there at an ideal time in that not only did we know very little of Vietnam, but we didn't deal with the integration problems that most of the country was dealing with at that time. New Orleans, <laughs> they used to say there was more business done at the racetrack than there was in any office building in town. It is a devil may, or it was a devil may care city. She was just a great old broad. She really was. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, spent five years tending bar at a little after-hours club, a half a block from the Playboy Club. And this is when I'm about 25 years old, so you can imagine all of the good times that I had and all of the trouble that I got into during those years. <laughs> Tell me, what kind of music did you grow up listening to? Well, I grew up listening to a little bit of everything. When I was a very, very young kid, my mom and dad had membership to the old band shell at the Texas Fairgrounds, Dallas, Texas. And that was old Rio Rita and 
all the old musical comedy. And then I, when we moved to Carolinas, I got a little bit interested in, in country music. Dad had called square dances, and I got into calling square dances a little bit. And then just kind of evolved into country. And then somewhere along the line, I guess about the time I finished college, I met the blues. And the blues is what I have always been interested in. I sang blues for a while. It's always been my mainstay. Isn't it true that you played the harmonica also? I played a little bit of harp, but that that was faking it more than anything. One of the unauthorized Buffett biographies uh, talks about me playing harmonica with him. I'm sure that was just the author being at an after-hours session where we were all working together and I was fooling around. I couldn't really consider myself a harp player. Not when Fingers Taylor is still a close friend. And you're talking about one of the great blues harmonica players, I think, of all time. Absolutely. I would rank him right there with Sonny Terry and, and Sonny Boy Williamson and some of the really good ones. I'm sure Fingers doesn't mind being compared to Sonny Boy Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and Sonny Terry didn't do bad in his own right. I remember the old Folkways label and having LPs with Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry on them were maybe some of the first blues albums I ever owned, those and Josh White. <laughs> what brought you to Key West? When... I ran out of a wife and a business in New Orleans. I knew that I wanted to go somewhere that I could play golf 12 months of the year. And I just kind of took off and drove and really didn't find any. I went to, to Florida after I had spent some time with my mom in South Carolina. And I didn't find anything that I really liked in Florida until I got to the Keys just settled there just on a whim and it in many ways was the best thing i ever did in some ways the worst (laughs) but i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world now what do you mean by that the best and maybe the worst well in that i have never been the strongest willed person in the world and so i managed to find all of the various ways you could get in trouble and avail myself of them during the trouble years in Key West, the dope business and one thing and another. Not business in the business sense, but just being around it. Describe for many of the people that didn't get to go down during what you called the, I think you called it the Bicycle Society days. What was it like? Well, it probably was as close to a family community as people from all over the United States thrown together can can be. Most instances, you didn't have last names, but you had Tom Corcoran was quack quack, and you had a couple of Taco Tom's around and Pete the Hat and 
Oh, just all, everybody had nicknames and they could be the closest friend in the world and you wouldn't know their last name. Interesting. Yeah, it was a very, very special community. I can remember Mallory Square when there were maybe, oh, a maximum 25 people sitting on the dock. Well, now I doubt that they get under 300 people down there for every sunset. This was betwixt and between. This was when the Navy had pretty much pulled out of Key West but before it became a popular tourist area. Tell me, what was your typical day like when you lived down there? <laughs> well, you, you started with Bloody Marys or vodka <laughs> and some juice in the morning. <laughs> Generally, your morning started around 10 or 11 o'clock, and you stayed with that until lunchtime when you had a beer or wine with lunch, and then you got to the serious drinking, usually gin or scotch in the afternoons. It was very muchly a society built around drinking and around clubs. I can remember shortly after we first opened the full moon, Key West was going through a uh, what they called the brownout period, where uh, it was a particularly warm summer, and, and there just wasn't enough electricity being generated. So they would close down one end of the island, and all of our crowd would come to the full moon. And then later in the afternoon, they would close my end down, and we would all go to the chart room at the pier house. And there were, oh, probably 15 or 20 of us that you saw at least four days a week and maybe every day of the week. And you saw them in bars and, and kind of the whole society built around the bars, really. I understand there were other substances as well, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know whether you wanted to go into that. Yes, there definitely was at, at that time. And drugs was more a cottage industry than, than it was a serious felony, I guess would be one way to put it. There were many who called it the fraternity boy profession. <laughs> but it got serious, and, and all of the smiles that I have from it, you don't get anymore. Well, it's gone the way of everything, I guess. It just... As it gets more popular, it gets more complicated. You have to have met some of the most incredible characters. I was real lucky here again in the time I was in Key West. One of the very first friends that I had when I moved into that city was Lila Lee, the silent film star. And of course, years and years later, <laughs> Through New Orleans and, and the Kennedy assassination, her son became a very good friend of mine, who was Jamie Kirkwood, that wrote Chorus Line and, and two or three novels, one thing and another. Oh, another one of my early friends down there was the 
retired boxing editor from Sports Illustrated. You could look up from the bar at the chart room. Now, I'm talking early 70s at this time. F. Lee Bailey might be sitting in the chart room with some of the local politicians, or there could be a bunch from SI that would be in there. Tom McGuain and his family were regulars. Jim Harrison was in there, Guy Valdim, just people that thought a lot and were far smarter than I will ever be, but I was exposed to some of, the, I guess, some of the best minds of that time and some of the serious nuts. Hunter Thompson came along a little bit later, but he was definitely one of them, and we all pretty well know his gonzo story. You just mentioned a lot of people that were writers, and it did seem like in those days there were writers that flocked there, Thomas McGuane, Jim Harrison, Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, and also Shel Silverstein. Why do you think so many writers were drawn to Key West? I think a lot of it came from Key West being a non-judgmental society. They would talk about you. I mean, you, I soon adopted the philosophy that I had no secrets in that town because they talked constantly, but they didn't really judge what they talked about. It was just, you know, we're dealing with a two-by-five island, so everybody had to have something to talk about. <laughs> and for that reason, I think a lot of the the artistic bent, not only writers, but musicians and, and a few of the visual arts were drawn to it because they could live pretty well as they chose. Tell me about the Full Moon Saloon. <laughs> Gosh, I don't even know where to start with the moon. It had been a club, the original moon now, which which was the first I guess the first seven years we were in business, maybe five years even, it's, I, I don't remember really right now. But anyway, it had been a club kind of on the border between the black population and the white population, and for that reason had never been able to establish an identity. and. I, because of my experiences in New Orleans, felt like that, that all of us in the service industry, the waiters and the bartenders and the entertainers, needed a place that was ours, a place to hang out. So we were offered, oh gosh, I think my original rent was... 500 a month, if I remember correctly, and we got in there stock and glassware and everything for an initial investment of $4,000. I mean, it was next to nothing. And the one thing that I insisted on, and, and Sydney definitely agreed with me, was we had to establish hours and stick with them no matter what. Well, closing time in Key West is 4 o'clock in the morning, and we had made up our mind that win, lose, or draw, it would be open until 4 in the morning. And probably the first 
year, maybe nine months, there were a lot of nights that I would be behind the bar and the cocktail waitress and I would play backgammon because we had no business, whatever. But then as people realized we were going to be there until four in the morning and that they could get food until two in the morning at that time, business just built up. And then it, of course, it tied in with the smuggling business to somewhat in that they were looking for a place that they could hang out without being looking over their shoulder all the time, I guess you should say. and. It just took off from there. Is it true that Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, given that he was such a night owl, that he liked to go to the Full Moon Saloon because he could get food late? I think that probably had some something to do with it. But he also liked the people that hung in there. There were a lot of people that were never known or will never be heard of that were great storytellers. And every now and then I'll pick up a book that deals with South Florida one way or another and run into a scene that refers back to a story that somebody had told in the full moon. So I think Hunter liked that also. (laughs) I just think that Hunter enjoyed people If he didn't feel like he was on display, he definitely wanted to be himself. And there were an awful lot of times that I can remember him kind of sitting back watching just to see what would happen. He certainly did not have that reputation. Obviously, he was a pretty well-thought person as well as, as what he accomplished. Tell all the listeners out there about the Eternal Verities. Uh, What do I say? What do I say about the Eternal Verities? I guess the truths that exist between you and you come closer to the Eternal Verities than, than anything. I find as I get older that it becomes more a a private thing than one that I readily talk about. I know that the friends from the 70s and 80s definitely had a lot to do with the formation of mine. Hmm. I find myself stuck for an answer. Well, I think (laughs) what you do when you go right ahead. I think what you said was pretty good. If it made any sense, whatever, I'd be amazed. (laughs) But it is hard for me to talk about these days. Of course, I'm I'm talking with you and remembering an awful lot of of things and people, and also looking at at this somewhat sedentary life that I live right now and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I could not keep up with me 20 years ago. I live in a little town with a great library and I have a couple of good golf courses, although I'm physically not able to play anymore, but I worked at one of the local courses. I've got, oh, probably 800 square feet in my apartment. And it's just a very nice, quiet way to live. 
but it's, you know, it's an old man's way of life. But Get- I figured I ran it pretty hard until the, until I was almost 60 years old, so I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't re- really grow up until my children were born. Hmm. Did the Full Moon Saloon have music, live music? We did in the later, year, later years after we moved to our new location, which was, oh, it was 5,000 square feet compared with about 2,500 in the initial location. And then we, we had live music on weekends. We had Sunday afternoon jam sessions. Believe it or not, there were some great jazz musicians both that lived in Key West and that traveled to Key West on a weekly basis, practically. So the Sunday afternoon sessions were a lot of fun. And really some good music, surprisingly good music. One thing that I was kind of proud of that we did at the Full Moon that also gives you some idea of the kind of place it was we closed for new year's eve and we would run a half page ad in the citizen that said the full moon saloon built by professionals for professionals we will be closed new year's eve that's amateur night what we didn't advertise was (laughs) that then we would give a private four or five course dinner for our regulars at $50 a head. And that included the entertainment. And as I say, four or five courses, we would limit it to 200 people and then open from two o'clock until four o'clock in the morning. So our friends who had been working other places could come wish each other a happy new year and it just worked out beautifully we didn't have anything negative going on at all it was a very positive night every year i saw a poster in a book that it advertised a gig that jimmy buffett was playing at the full moon saloon spelled buffet I used to jokingly call him Mr. Buffet. I'm not sure that I know what poster you refer to, but Jimmy actually opened the new location for us. When we moved around the corner to Simonton Street in the big place where we had entertainment, Jimmy and the Carl Reefers were there opening night, and it was a zoo, you know, it I'm surprised the fire marshal didn't close us completely that night. Plus, we had had pushed the opening date closer than we should have. We literally were laying pieces in the bar. We had kind of a herringbone effect with different woods for our main bar. And we were putting pieces down at 6 o'clock in the evening when we were supposed to open the doors at (laughs) 7.30. We cut it that close. When did you meet Mr. Buffett? Jimmy and I met in New Orleans. He was in college, I think, at Mississippi State. Now, I'm not positive, but I believe that's where he was in school. And I had already 
finished and was working at this little after-hour spot that I talked about earlier, but used to go around the corner to a place called the Bayou Room, which was a folk club. And he would come over and work the folk club on weekends, and I would sit in or just be there as a customer, depending upon what was going on. And this was during the 60s. He and I first became friends. I shared his first joint with him, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Now, that is a claim to fame if I've ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) That goes back to the things I was talking about earlier, that maybe I availed myself of too much fun. (laughs) So this was during the 60s? That Jimmy and I became friends, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Probably... Here again, I'm guessing because it, it has a tendency to run together. I would guess mid sixties, maybe sixty five and six, five six and seven, right around then. What was your impression of him? Quite honestly, he was a nice kid, and that was kind of how I thought of him until we became reacquainted in Key West. We weren't close, close friends in New Orleans. One thing at that time, he was still spending a lot of his time in Mississippi and Alabama and hadn't made New Orleans home. But we really became good friends when he and Jerry Jeff Walker walked into the chart room together. And that was my first year in Key West. As I say, Jimmy and I had been friends at the Bayou Room. Jerry Jeff, who, by the way, is the man that wrote Mr. Bojangles, and is kind of a local hero so far, or an icon so far as Texas is concerned. He's very popular and still works House of Blues circuit and that kind of thing. Prefers to work as a single, but he does have a band. He had a house in the Upper Keys, up around Summerlin Key, and they had been working at, oh, I can't remember the name of the nightclub in Carlgrave Gables. It's the same one that Fred Neal used to work and several of the good blues people. The Flick, I believe it was. Yeah, the Flick. Yeah, and they came down to Key West just partying one weekend and walked in behind the bar, and I I can't on the radio quote exactly what they said, but in effect it was, is that really you, Vic Latham? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah. And so then all three of us got to be closer even than we had been in New Orleans. Jerry had, when he first went on the road as a street musician, I had been one of the ones that was on the periphery of the blues scene that always had a job. So the street people could always stay with me for a night or two, sleeping on my sofa, and and was usually good for a 20 if they needed it. We go back a long way, too. Why do you think he, he, being Jimmy Buffett, has been so successful all these years? We used to laugh about it. I don't know which has done the most for the other. 
whether Jimmy has done more for Key West or Key West has done more for Jimmy. Jimmy is the musical personification of the Key West attitude that I remember and that I love so much. I think attitude is the word I use advisedly. It, it maybe is a way of looking at life, back to the eternal verities. <laughs> hmm. Do you have a favorite song of Jimmy Buffett's? Yeah, He Went to Paris is still my favorite of all of this. I don't know. I just I like what it says, and I like the look that he gets in his eyes. It was written about his grandfather. And, uh, well, I guess that and Captain and the Kid were both written about his grandfather. But, but that definitely is my favorite. So how did you see Key West change over the years? <laughs> it's a subject I don't deal with well because I feel like I was partially responsible. As it became more popular with the tourist industry, it became less genuine. Too many T-shirt shops. Too many people just looking without taking part, without understanding what the keys were really all about. I understand, in fact, a friend of mine told me not long ago not to even try to go back, that I would be so disappointed now. It's become, well, when you build a TGIF and, and uh, a uh, Hogs Breath Saloon and that kind of thing, you're losing what the individuality that Key West had. Same reason that we nixed the idea of ever franchising out the full moon was we felt, and I still feel, that the bar business should be an individual undertaking and should reflect the community. You don't have much of that anymore. There's still one down there, I understand, that in fact, one of our old customers from the full moon still tends by there, the Green Parrot, which is down on Whitehead Street. And I guess it comes closer to being what the 80s bars were like than any of them. Do you think that there's any magic in Key West that's left? Oh, yeah, there'll always be some. For one thing, you can't visually experience Key West without being aware of the magic. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful area. You know, everybody talks about the sunsets, but I can remember sunrises that were perfectly gorgeous. And, and the, the fact that you've got the ocean coming in, but you have no waves. They, your worst is just a gentle chop. And yeah, there will always be magic, and there will always be magical people in Key West. It's just that they get harder and harder to find. When you look back at all the years in Key West and all the wonderful conversations you had with people and all the fun times you had, is there one memory in particular that stands out as your favorite memory? Mm, wow. No. I can't say that there is one. I can, that's like saying name your favorite novel or your favorite song. There were so many of them. 
as I say, so many good minds that were there and, and people who thought kind of outside the envelope. The whole world seemed a little bit fresher just by being exposed to that. Hmm. I have two final questions before we go. Shoot. All right. What is your all-time favorite meal? <laughs> well, I'm very prosaic. I'm still a meat and potatoes man. All right. <laughs> that would have to rank as my very favorite. If I wanted to get creative, I'd have to say shrimp creole. Okay. I love the Cajun food. But, of course, being in Chicago, it's hard to find really good Cajun food. We've got a couple of good Cajun restaurants up here, but not like you could walk in on any corner in, in the French Quarter and you'd have a meal that would just blow you out of the box. Right. <laughs> My last question, given that this broadcast is going out all over the world, what would you like to say to all the people that are listening in? Hmm. That regrets are a waste of time. And it's something I frequently have to tell myself. But the more you can experience, the better it will all come together as you go down the road. Wow. That was great. Thank you for saying that. Oh, hey, Paul. It's my pleasure. I'm kind of talking off. In fact, this whole conversation's been kind of off the top of my head, and I'm sure that <laughs> if I heard it rebroadcast, that I'd have a dozen things that I would say or do differently, but you certainly have gotten the basic Vic Latham. <laughs> it was a pleasure to get the basic Vic Latham. Maybe one day our paths will cross, and we'll be able to talk face-to-face. Oh, I would love that. I I have some, in fact, there was a short period that I lived in Atlanta, went up there from Greenville, South Carolina, ostensibly to go to work for McCann Marshall. I don't know whether they're still in business or not, the ad agency. Well, if you ever come through, just let me know. I got one more question. Okay. Why do you think that Jimmy objected so much to that biography that was written about him? Because he didn't authorize it. It's kind of like I used to tell my what are now present ex-wives, I'll do anything in the world for you until you start expecting it, but I want the right to do it. I think quite honestly. Now, also, you understand, Jimmy is a moneymaker and very aware of making money. Whether that entered into it, I can't say. But just speaking from my own attitude, that would be why he objected. I see. Well, sir, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Paul, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you can wire together a decent show out of it. It'll be a Um, very decent show. If I can ever help you in any way, let me know. All right. Well, you have a good one. You too. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a million. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.